Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in Houston. His most recent book, published by Hearst, is Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. On today's podcast, we're going to be discussing the implications for the Middle East of the most extreme government in the history of the State of Israel. Christian, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. In the first month of this year, 32 Palestinians have been killed, 10 in one IDF raid on a refugee camp. There was an attack on Jews leaving a synagogue in a contested district of East Jerusalem, leaving seven dead. And in response to that attack, Prime Minister Netanyahu has spoken of loosening gun licenses, deporting family and friends of attackers, sending more troops into the West Bank. Do you see a straight line between the coalition of extremists Netanyahu has pulled together and January's month of violence? Well, I think I do. And I think we saw a similar trend in the United States in the months after Donald Trump's election victory in November 2016, when it seemed as if extreme voices felt emboldened and felt able to act in public and do things that in more conventional times they simply wouldn't have contemplated. So I think there is a straight line between the more extreme uh, enabling of these voices in the new Israeli government that was put together and the acts on the ground. And of course, now we're seeing in uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's response as well, further language that seems to be a continuation of this enabling of of more extreme parts of society. And so that risks, I think, a, a cycle of further violence that is an escalatory cycle in itself. Acts of violence will then beget further acts of violence. All sides will polarize even more. The moderate middle ground, which I think was already fraying at the edges, will become even more hollowed out. And every act will lead to more demands for a political response, especially demands from the coalition members of the government, which Netanyahu is now leading. And of course, Netanyahu has uh, an interest in remaining prime minister, partly because of his own personal difficulties. That's why he has put together a a coalition of these groups, which in, in previous governments wouldn't have been included. And so I think there is a risk that uh, this cycle will continue, it will intensify, and it will bring us into a dangerous new and largely uncharted territory, which uh, the next few months may may see spill out. One of the things that Netanyahu apparently told the Americans was, I can, I can manage these people, the uh, Ben Kavirs and the Smotriches and these various other extremists. Uh, and yet we see these people actually feeding off the situation, encouraging the violence. Well, I think it's a it's a risky gamble if Netanyahu thinks he can manage the more extreme parts of the coalition he now leads, partly because uh, the coalition is doesn't have an enormous majority, has more of a majority than the, the previous Israeli governments had. But still, if, if any of the coalition members felt that they were going to withdraw, partly because of their own domestic constituencies, which they also now have to appease by being in government, they, they won't necessarily want to take a less of a hard line. 
And so they have domestic constituencies of their own, which will, I think, preclude uh, forms of moderation moving back towards the middle. And so every act of, of violence on, on all sides will, I think, make it more difficult for the uh, advocates of a moderate line to, to rein people in. And so if Netanyahu thinks he can uh, uh, manage it, I think that's walking a very, a very risky tightrope. And uh, to borrow a, a phrase from Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh, when he was the longtime leader of Yemen, used to say ruling Yemen was like dancing on the heads of snakes. And uh, we may see that Netanyahu is trying something similar. And of course, it didn't end well in Yemen for, for, for Ali Abdullah Saleh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting what you say about uh, the moderates losing ground, because one thought that I had, Christian, was looking at these uh, massive demonstrations in the streets of Tel Aviv and other cities in Israel against, among other things, this uh, proposal to have an override on uh, Supreme Court decisions. You know, there are many, the vast majority of Palestinians who are also moderate. Is there not a possibility of some sort of a common ground between those Israelis who got out in the streets and protest against Netanyahu and, and Palestinians who are not extremists, who are looking for solutions? Is there not a possibility of some sort of a uh, of a coalition forming there, if you will? Well, one would, one would imagine there probably would be in the sense that most Palestinians also are not extremists. Most Israelis are, I think, uh, have at least different levels of unease about what the government is trying to do. And so if they can all come together in a bottom-up uh, coalition, as it were, to to push back against the, the restrictions, the erosions of some of the checks and balances, especially with the, the new judicial uh, law that is now being discussed, then that could be a, a rallying point for Israelis and Palestinians to realize that they have more more in common, perhaps, and drives them apart. And we and we've seen how Israel does have a very vibrant civil society. We've seen uh, in 2011, for example, months of massive protests in Israel, also when Netanyahu was prime minister um, back a decade ago. And so there is, a, I think, a, a vibrant civil, civil society, a, a vibrant legacy and history of popular ground, kind of ground-up uh, mobilization. And if that can become more inclusive, and bring people together, then I think that could be a silver lining that we, we might see uh, pushing back against the, the more extreme uh, attempts to try and divide and to, to sort of rule by or kind of govern by playing on, on extreme elements and differences. Yeah, a coalition between those Israelis who care for justice and Palestinians who have been denied justice for uh, for such a long time. I want to ask you now, though, about the Abraham Accords and Israel's new friends in the Arab world. I'm thinking in particular, of course, of the United Arab Emirates. Is this coalition of Netanyahu going to cause some difficulties for the Arab signatories of the uh, Abraham Accords? Well, it already has in the sense that Netanyahu announced in early January that his first overseas visit as prime minister would be to the UAE. And then uh, that was followed several days later by uh, an eruption of violence, and I think a statement by, uh, or actually a visit, a visit to the uh, to to Jerusalem by Ismail Ben Gvir that uh, led the UAE and other Gulf states, including I think uh, other signatories to the Abraham Accords, to uh, denounce the Ben Gvir's action and to uh, cancel indefinitely the visits.
This was Ben Gavir turning up, grandstanding provocatively at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound on the uh, 3rd of January. This has already had, had a result. If you remember back in the spring of 2021 when uh, Israel was going through one of its uh, many elections and Netanyahu actually lost power, he was very keen to schedule a visit to the UAE. I think he saw it as sealing his legacy, which was the, the of course, the Abraham Accords that he signed in 2020. The UAE kept putting it off in 2021. I think even Mohammed bin Zayed saw that this would be bad optics also with confines of an Israeli election campaign. But then actually the, the visit of the Israeli prime minister went ahead shortly after Netanyahu stepped down. It was, of course, his successor who then went and visited uh, Mohammed bin Zayed in the UAE in, in Abu Dhabi. So it does put the UAE and other countries like Bahrain and Morocco in a, in a difficult position. I think the UAE is trying to balance its uh, support for the Abraham Accords, which are progressing on a technocratic, kind of official-to-official -official basis, with uh, not stepping too far from, uh, I guess, what is still an Arab consensus, that uh, progress has to be, progress on normalization has to be matched by progress on the ground. And that is, in, of course, is one of the uh, premises of normalization in 2020, the uh, the UAE made great play of the fact that they claimed they had taken annexation off the table by by normalizing with Israel. The Israelis actually said something quite different. And the actual Abraham Accord, the text, made no mention, I think, of annexation. So the UAE has to also be mindful of its domestic and regional constituency. Mohammed bin Zayed, I think, was probably wise to, uh, to not... Uh, accept Netanyahu's offer of a, a visit at this time. And I think we'll see that continuing, at least uh, probably while this new Israeli government is in place. We had also seen Abdullah bin Zayed, the UAE foreign minister, back in November, warning, well, warning, I, I guess, the Israelis that uh, if uh, certain individuals who now are part of the Israeli government were included in the Israeli government, then that would have uh, have consequences for the for the for the normalization. Well, they were included. The Abraham Accords haven't been abrogated, but I, I think the UAE is probably trying to distance themselves, at least politically, even as defense and security and technocratic cooperation continue at a less visible level. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you: is that uh, uh, these political statements? being put out there, but at the same time, the security arrangements, defense deal, trade, uh, that's all going on unaffected. And the Negev, the Negev Forum continues to meet. There was a meeting, I think, in, in mid-January, which is more of an economic uh, issue as well, and trying to create greater forms of economic cooperation between uh, countries which have normalized, also countries which have normalized in the past, and with the US. And so there are still attempts to try to um, create these new regional structures, maybe taking politics out of it. Of course, the difficulty perhaps with the current political situation is that it's increasingly difficult to take politics out of the, uh, the equation. Mm, indeed it is. Well, let me ask you about Mohammed bin Salman, who has privately expressed his wish to recognize Israel, yet the vast majority of his subjects, as elsewhere in the Arab world, are opposed. Do you think the current situation could force him to back the Palestinian cause in any meaningful way? Could he step up to the plate at this stage? Is it worth his while to do that? 
I think it might be interesting to see what other Saudi officials, not necessarily Mohammed bin Salman, but uh, other Saudi officials say. So at the time of normalization, there were some interesting comments from uh, Turkey al-Faisal, from uh, other senior Saudis who were, I think, quite critical. Bandar, Prince Bandar was quite interesting as well. Bandar bin Sultan, the former Saudi ambassador to the US. And they were the ones who were more vocal about restating Saudi Arabia's uh, commitment to the uh, the peace plan that uh, Crown Prince Abdullah had put forward in, in I think, 2004, 2005, which, of course, put normalization on the table, but in return for Israeli withdrawal from occupied Arab and Palestinian territory. And so that remains the Saudi position. I think the Saudis were taken by surprise in 2020 when the UAE normalized on their own terms, kind of moving away from the Arab consensus that Crown Prince, later King Abdullah, had put together. The the Saudis didn't necessarily see that coming, I think. Now, what I think Mohammed bin Zayed may have hoped in 2020 was that by doing things on his terms, he was setting a new consensus, a kind of UAE consensus. But of course, only Bahrain and the Gulf followed, and Morocco, and to some extent, Sudan. So what we saw was the majority of the Arab world remaining at least on the sidelines, and by definition, perhaps committed to the Saudi peace plan or the Saudi consensus that there has to be genuine withdrawal before normalization can take place. I don't see Mohammed bin Salman deviating from that position, at least as long as his father, the king, is still alive. And I I mean, the statements attributed to Mohammed bin Salman in his 2018 visit to the US were, uh, of course, an indication perhaps of the direction he may wish to go. And if and when he becomes king, he may feel that he needs to take action partly to increase his standing in the U.S., especially post-Khashoggi, post uh, all the difficulties he's faced in terms of U.S. pushback. But we're not at that stage yet. I wouldn't, I don't necessarily foresee Mohammed bin Salman himself making statements, but if the Saudi foreign minister, if senior Saudi officials like Turkey al-Fazl make statements that have very solidly backing the Palestinians. Uh, I think those statements will be seen to be made with at least the approval of the Crown Prince and Prime Minister. Then it becomes a question of how much the Israelis are prepared to lose in the face of of having this this government that Netanyahu has, has cobbled together, because obviously getting Saudi Arabia to recognize Israel would be a huge, huge coup. But as you suggest, that would be impossible under the current situation with the coalition that he's he's got. And I think Netanyahu finds himself in a bind because I think Netanyahu desperately would like Saudi Arabia to join the Abraham Accords. I think he would view Saudi normalization with Israel as the crowning achievement of his career, of his time as prime minister, an achievement of truly historic proportions. And I think he still desperately wants that. Now, the challenge for him, of course, is that the actions of the government he now leads, the coalition partners he's now brought into government, directly contradict that. And I think make it more difficult to imagine that that normalization would take place, at least on his watch when he's still prime minister. So you do see a kind of divergence of objectives and aims here which I think will be very difficult for, for Netanyahu to uh, to sort of find a, a path 
that can align the two. Mm. Well, let me ask you about Qatar, which has played an interesting and useful role, useful to the Israelis, certainly, as well as Palestinians, uh, particularly with providing funds to Gaza. Do you see that Qatar is playing any kind of a mediator role that would help to calm things down? Is that something that they would possibly engage in? Well, I think the Qataris obviously have been providing humanitarian and financial support to, to Gaza within coordination with the Israeli authorities. And I think what we're seeing, especially in Gaza, is that Hamas isn't necessarily at the forefront of this latest escalation. And I think uh, we're already seeing a moderating influence um, of Qatar in terms of uh, reining back some of the groups like Hamas that might otherwise be at the forefront of an escalation. So I think the Qataris can play a, a role at least in maintaining channels of communication, maintaining dialogue, perhaps working with others like Egypt. And of course, Qatari-Egyptian relations have become uh, much better since the end of the blockade in January 2021. The political relationship between Qatar and Egypt with Sisi and uh, the Qatari authorities is now much stronger. So we may see Qatar, Egypt, and even the UAE trying to exert influence behind the scenes to at least uh, put forward the view to all involved that an escalation isn't uh, helping anybody. And of course, the Egyptians, the Qataris can do that perhaps more with Hamas. The UAE perhaps would be going through back channels to uh, elements and groups in the West Bank and also to the Israelis. Yeah, that's a very interesting thought, because what those three countries could say was, look, unless you rein these guys in, you're making it impossible for us, and we're going to have to take some steps. Otherwise, the situation becomes unmanageable for us, because there's a point beyond which Hamas simply cannot sit back. Yes, and I think we've already seen there was an escalation and there was a, a spike in a round of, fight, a round of fighting in, in May 2021, which uh, was already the first uh, real challenge to the post-Abraham Accord context. And then the UAE did not uh, abrogate the Abraham Accords. The UAE did not leave, uh, did not suspend normalization. They perhaps distanced themselves from it. So I think every successive round of fighting, especially given the political context today, which wasn't present to the same extent in 2021, would make it harder. Now, there's only so many times perhaps you can threaten to suspend normalization without doing so. And of course, Abdullah bin Zayed had indicated as much in November 2022, when he was warning, or at least appearing to warn the Israeli leadership that if they did put together this coalition, there would be consequences. Well, there weren't in the sense that normalization continues. So yeah, at some point, the partners that have normalized from the Arab world will have to make a decision. Do we then go to, do we actually then kind of follow through? Do we formally suspend normalization? What do we do next? And I think they'd rather not have to be in that position. But of course, every act in this current cycle might make it closer to having to be made. Mm, which would be a, a huge embarrassment for Netanyahu. But look, let, let's go to the United States. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke yet again of a two-state solution after his meetings with Netanyahu and Mahmoud Abbas earlier this week. A press conference, among other statements, he said, quote, 
All sides must take steps to prevent further escalation and restore calm. But Christian, let's face it, President Biden and his administration remain very strong backers of Israel. Do you expect that that will in any way change as the extremists in Netanyahu's government continue to wield their influence? It's been interesting in the sense that there's been a stream of high-profile senior U.S. visitors to the Israeli, to Israel over the past uh, several weeks. It was also there were Bill Burns, head of the CIA, was in Israel. Also, Jake Sullivan, national security advisor, in addition to Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State. And Blinken's press conference was quite interesting in the sense that he quite publicly spoke about the need to maintain checks and balances in Israel and to not erode the foundations of the Israeli-U.S. relationship. And of course, this Biden administration knows only too well uh, what can happen when uh, a government an author, kind of an authoritarian minded government bent on eroding checks and balances tries to do so. The Biden administration took office in the the wake of donald trump 's uh, attempts to uh, to stay on in power and of course to uh, ransack the capital so this administration in the u s is fully aware of the slippery slope that they see perhaps Israel potentially going down with this coalition so Blinken's statements and the statements of other U.S. officials, I suspect, will be especially behind the scenes, back-channeling quite strongly in terms of making it very clear to Israeli officials that uh, there are red lines which, uh, if they are crossed, would be looked upon at least with disfavor by, by the U.S. Now, the question then is, does that lead to any further action? Does it actually lead to consequences? Or does Netanyahu and his coalition partners, do they come to a a view that they can cross these red lines and get away with it, that there wouldn't be any real U.S. pushback? And uh, that remains to be seen. I think, again, that is a a choice that probably U.S. and Israeli officials would rather they didn't have to make. But again, as we said with the, the Arab component too, it might be a choice that is coming steadily closer. But certainly, Blinken's public comments in his press conference were were quite um, were quite vocal, and I think were were just putting down a uh, a kind of a warning to the, the Israeli government that uh, you know there are you know, certainly from our experience in the U.S. we you know we know that this is a, a dangerous road that could easily escalate and could have long term consequences. Now we'll have to see what happens next. Yeah, I suppose there is that element: is that once you unleash the mob or the power of the mob. Uh, and use it as a political weapon, you know, can you call it back in again? And um, well, in America, thus far, it was called back in, but Netanyahu, I think, is is moving into very much uncharted territory. And as you say, the important point is about consequence, because nothing would empower the extremists more than for there to be a threat of consequence, and then no consequence delivered. Well, yes, and we've seen in other contexts as well how it's uh, if you say you're going to do something and then don't do it, it has uh, it had it can really damage credibility. You know, if you remember with Barack Obama and his red line in Syria, and of course that red line was crossed, nothing happened, and uh, we had all sorts of uh, destabilizing consequences flowing from it, including uh, consequences for the way that U.S. credibility is seen by uh, partners in the Middle East, including in the Gulf. So. 
if there were to be threats or consequences followed by no action, that I think would empower the more extreme groups in the coalition, probably make it more difficult for Netanyahu to rein them in, as he has said he would do, and that makes more likely an open divergence between interests in the U.S. and, of course, in Israel, which which would be, I think, uh, damaging to both. Mm, yeah, and in terms of a broader geopolitical context, is Iran a, a further complicating factor with this extremist regime in Israel appearing ready to up the temperature? After all, we've, we've just had that drone strike on a weapons facility inside Iran. I know there's been previous strikes, but uh, do you think that the situation could become just that much more dangerous, given that the JCPOA talks are basically moribund, given that there's this now very strong extremist element, and given that Iran perhaps senses opportunities in this uh, situation? Yes, the geopolitical context is is a, is a tinderbox. It's just waiting for that spark to to set it alight. The you know the attacks over the weekend in Iran, I think, certainly by the Iranians, are attributed to, to Israel, perhaps with at least tacit U.S. support. Now, whether or not that's true, it's certainly the perception. We've also seen uh, Iran International and other Saudi-led media more or less saying the same thing. I think. We're seeing Israeli officials telling the Americans, we want to focus on Iran. U.S. officials saying, well, you have other issues close to home that are more pressing for us. So there's certainly a, a divergence, I think, in priority. The U.S. would like Israel to focus on its own domestic affairs. The Israeli government is saying, well, we have all this, all these geopolitical challenges we want to, we want to prioritize instead. And so we've seen months of kind of very quiet, under-the-radar attacks between, or at least attributed to Israeli officials in Iran, assassinations and uh, other strikes against infrastructure. And the question, I suppose, going forward is, does Iran choose to strike back? Does it choose to strike back through its uh, proxy networks across the Middle East? Does it strike back directly or indirectly? And if so, against whom? We've seen, obviously, a lot of Iranian activity in Iraq over the past uh, few weeks as well. And then how does that then feed into the post-JCPOA, because I think we are in a post-JCPOA phase, of Iran's regional neighbors as well? And if you remember back in 2020, when the Biden campaign, before he won the election, the Biden campaign was making it very clear that not only would they rejoin the JCPOA if they won the election, return to office, but they would then have a follow-on agreement that would address, in their view, the concerns of Israel and the Gulf states, which was Iran's regional behavior, its group use of proxies, its uh, missile and uh, ballistic uh, weapons programs. Now, there was always skepticism, I think, in Israel and in the Gulf that a follow-on agreement would ever be possible. I think they all did believe that the U.S. would rejoin the JCPOA. So we're, we're, we're now in a sort of worst of both worlds, I suppose. There's no recommitment to the JCPOA. I mean, the agreement is more or less dead, but it seems that neither the US nor Iran wants to be the one that is seen to be blamed for its collapse. So I think this sort of stalemates in every, is in everybody's interests right now. And obviously, US attention now is looking forward to the next election anyway in 2024. 
So there's no GCPOA, but there's also no post-JCPOA follow-on agreements. And so in that context, in that that vacuum, there were certainly all sorts of kind of subterranean activities which are taking place, each of which could could be that spark. And I think that's the added layer in this uh, kind of regional context that obviously at the weekend we saw is uh, still extremely... Uh, extremely live as an issue mm, yeah a dangerous times uh in the middle east once again christian yes it is and of course it's only a month since we were all uh enjoying and watching the world cup in qatar which uh portrayed a very different middle east a middle east that was uh unified in passion for football and uh of course a month later and we're talking once again about geopolitical rivalries and uh issues that have been uh, on the table for, for many years and decades. And I think that's unfortunate. Christian, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy in Houston, Texas. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to more than 120,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I hope you're enjoying our podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, contributors like Christian. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. Thank you.